The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good evening. That's better. It's great to be here and uh, back at MBC again. And uh, somebody said to me earlier, you seem to be a regular fixture here. And I said, well, they keep asking me back, and uh, so I keep coming back. And it really is good to be back with you all and uh, in this beautiful spot and somewhat out of the uh, intense heat of the concrete jungle, uh, which is quite stifling. So nice to be up near the lake and enjoying the rest of God. Uh, it was also a real privilege to uh, be listening to Hans Peter this morning, uh, hearing him talk about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And certainly we did not uh, consult in any way, uh, in fact I only met him at dinner time tonight, about uh, what we were dealing with this week. But my uh, subject for this evening is hope. And throughout the week I want to talk about the calling of the church And it's difficult to talk about the calling of the church uh, unless we begin, I believe, with the subject of hope. And in fact, everything I have to say about the calling of the church in the mornings throughout the week is really predicated upon the necessity of capturing a biblical understanding of hope. So let's begin tonight by reading Psalm 46. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed. And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Think about that. Selah is what that means. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now, when I read Psalm 46, I can't help but feel hopeful for the church and for the kingdom of God, no matter what may be going on in the world round about us. And in some respects, the more informed you are about the world around you, the more cause for despair and despondency there is. The writer of Proverbs tells us, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so there is a sense in which as we... uh, learn more about our world and our culture and its condition today, there is a sense in which we could become pretty despondent. I don't know exactly what condition you've come in in terms of your heart and mind this week. Whether you are feeling, coming away to a place like this, of course, we come to be rested, to be refreshed, to be strengthened, to have a sense of renewal in our lives. And often we are struggling with very, very difficult circumstances in our personal lives, in our family lives, and in the church. And difficulties and problems and struggles can come from all manner of different quarters. Perhaps you're a church leader here. You're in some form of church leadership. 
anyone in church leadership knows the pain and difficulty and struggle of being a leader and the burdens that come with it. So perhaps you need to hear a message of hope this week. As an apologist and somebody who's concerned about culture and the church's impact upon culture and reaching those who are shaping the ideas of others, the, uh, to some degree the intellectual elite, if you will, whose frivolous ideas filter down to the rest of us eventually and start to decay our culture, there's often not a good deal of reason to be hopeful. Psalm 46 reminds us, though, who our God is and that we have every reason to be a people of hope. Whatever your personal circumstances, your familial circumstances, your church situation, whatever it may be, Psalm 46 reminds us there is cause for hope. I want to talk about our hope this week in terms of our calling in the kingdom of God. I've been thinking about recently how long I've been trying to, by the grace of God, share and defend the faith. Believe it or not, 20 years. 20 years this year. Somebody said to me this evening, Paul, I believe we just met out in the corridor, you look so young, how do you do it? Oil of Yule, I said. It's very good stuff. something about the righteous shining like the dawn though springs to mind um, <clears throat> anyway now my, uh, my, my speaking began when I was just uh, 16 years of age my father was a pastor and I'm going to uh, do something I don't usually do and just uh, say a little bit about uh, myself this evening only because it's relevant to the topic and what I'm talking about this week I grew up in a pastor's home uh, my father was a pastor for a number of years down in the southwest of England in a little town called Devizes, which is sandwiched between two very famous stone circles, uh, Avebury and Stonehenge. You might have heard of Stonehenge. Uh, near the famous Roman city of Bath. That's where I grew up. And uh, when I was uh, 18 years old, my parents went to be missionaries in Pakistan where uh, they served for uh, now... Well, actually, when their first forays began, yeah, about 17 years ago. Uh, they've lived there f- uh, for the last 15 years. And so I remember, uh, because my father was a church planter and then a missionary in a country where less than 2% of the population would name the name of Christ, my, as I look back on my Christian life, I often think of it as a time of hope against hope. I remember that being the case in my own school where I went, where the headmaster was a Christadelphian, which is a pseudo-Christian cult. And uh, I was struggling to start a Christian fellowship group in the school against significant opposition. I remember all the difficulties that my dad had, my family had, in trying to get this church going in this small rural community. I think often about the struggle of reaching the Islamic world. And over the past 10 years especially, in the work of apologetics, I've seen so much of the hopelessness of the world on display, and sadly, so much of the hopelessness that has inflicted the church and infected the church. I'm not talking now about some sort of trite, mindless optimism but a biblical understanding of hope. And yet at the same time, as I have sought to, by the grace of God and to the best of my ability, be faithful to the preaching of God's word and the defense of the faith, I have seen hope kindled in the hearts of non-believers and hope renewed in the hearts of God's people. If we don't have any hope, We haven't got anything to defend anyway. In fact, the great Magna Carta of Christian apologetics in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. And do this with gentleness and with respect. Well, if we don't have 
any hope, friends. We don't have anything to defend, do we? Hans was reminding us this morning about the source of our hope, which is Christ. When we set apart Christ as Lord in our lives, the Apostle Peter says, our hope will be on display to the world, and they will ask us about it because it's a hopeless world. Our hope being on display because we are under the Lordship of Christ. People will want to know about this hope, this hope externalized. Well, I really began speaking uh, when I was still part of uh, my brother's band called the Boot Brothers. I started in music. And then when we had uh, finished our gig or whatever it was, I would then try and speak. Um, and uh, shortly thereafter, I, I joined an organization in England called Salt Mine, which was where I met my wife, Jenny. And uh, that was an organization committed to evangelism in schools and in um, uh, universities and uh, often in prisons and juvenile centers doing uh, arts and evangelism. And I spent two years there. Then I spent three years as uh, an associate pastor in the role of director of evangelism for a church in the city in southwest London in an area called Fulham. You may have heard of Chelsea and Fulham, the premiership football clubs. Doesn't seem to help us much when it comes to World Cups, uh, but um, never mind. <clears throat> and I spent three years there before uh, uh, my vocational work as an apologist in RZIM for uh, seven years, five years here as the Canadian director. And uh, when I came to Canada with my wife now just over seven years ago, uh, I began to travel quite extensively in Canada into various other parts of the world, but especially in Canada. And one of the things that did strike me was the sense of hopelessness and despair in so much of the church. It struck me. Well, when uh, you look around the city of Toronto, you will see that many of the churches, at least the church structures, the buildings, have become Hare Krishna centers or condominiums or mosques or restaurants and so forth. And so you look about you and you see, when you see the signs of decline or decay, it would be easy to start getting depressed. And as uh, my family began to grow here in Canada, and our third child was born, Isaac, began to feel increasingly a strong sense of calling back to the church, and away from a focus upon traveling to the church, to a local church situation. And uh, there were a few locations and possibilities that I considered, but we were feeling increasingly drawn to a church plant in Toronto. And God laid a text of Scripture on our hearts from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 4. He read it to you. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. That's actually part of Jesus' sermon in the Gospel of Luke when he announced Jubilee, the coming of Jubilee. And so we began to, to feel and to plan and pray in terms of a church plant in the city and a small institute. And we wanted to be down there on the subway line. And uh, as I look back on it now, uh, and that decision to take that different step and to move in that direction, it's not small wonder that some people thought I may have had a bit of a screw loose somewhere. And as I look back, I think to myself, what actually was I thinking? I'm not sure that in the cool light of day I would have, but that's because when God starts to do something and stir in your heart, God has to do it. You can't humanly engineer these things. Uh, we had no money. We had no location. We had a vision on a piece of paper and a tinsy bit of hope. And that was the important part. The vision was important too, but the hope was the important part. And then I went trudging around downtown Toronto looking for somebody to give me a church. Optimistic, you might say. Uh, and indeed it was. Rebuttal after rebuttal in terms of various negotiations, but cutting a very long story short, God in the end brought to us and gave us 
a location in downtown Toronto on Danforth Avenue, just off Danforth Avenue. Big 700-seat building for nothing and debt-free. That was a miracle. It was something of a miracle. A small handful of praying West Indian people had kept that place open. Hope against hope, without a minister, that God would do something there. They were told many times, you know, sell it, go somewhere else, try and start a West Indian church somewhere in a West Indian area. No, we believe that God set this church here for a reason. And so, having rented out various portions of the church to try and keep the roof on, finally, my prayers and aspirations and hopes and God's purposes coalesced with their plans, hopes, aspirations, and God's purposes, and Westminster Chapel was born. And uh, we've been rejoicing in 17 baptisms and uh, uh, sharp, steep uh, growth and influence in the city community where we are in the first uh, few months. And a year and a half plus of hope. And one of the first things I did was put a picture over my, or rather a, a text over my office door. It simply read, my wife Jenny spotted it for me and bought it for me and gave it to me. It says, hope is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. And in fact, there weren't any stairs up there when I first arrived, so that was actually quite prophetic. (laughs) The church plant gurus will tell you that the great majority of church plants fail. But we have to look to Christ, not to the science of church plant gurus. If Christ will build his church, then we rely on Christ to build his church, and strengthen his people. A year and a half of hope. Very often, people are looking in our time, both in and outside the church, for hope in the ideas, the abstract ideas of men. They're looking elsewhere than the Word of God for hope, for the source of hope. Every humanistic way of thinking seeks hope in the ideas of men. And sometimes, friends, even in our churches, and as I say, I'm talking about the church this week, we look to various fads and strategies and fashions instead of the Word of God as our hope when we see decline and struggle and deterioration and difficulty. Sometimes we can fish around for hope everywhere except the place where God wants us to look. Sometimes we are actually directly importing humanistic ideas in place of faithfulness. Well, my experience thus far has been faithfulness in the end to all of God's Word is the only source of hope for God's church and for the Christian. Whether it's the Muslim world or whether it's the Canadian context, or whether it's debating a philosopher at a university, or whether it's trying to gather a small group of people for a church plant, faithfulness to the Word of God, I believe, is the key to hope. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, if you want to be original anyway, tell the truth. So often we're looking for originality Because we think, well, the answer to our difficulty of decline, and friends, let's face it, it's easy to pretend on a camp week like this that all is well with the church, and all is well with our mission. All is not well with the church, all is not well with the mission. We're facing significant challenges in our time, perhaps unprecedented, perhaps, in fact, I would say, in terms of the people we're seeking to reach, we haven't had an audience as biblically illiterate as this for 1,500 years. That's a great opportunity. And sometimes we think, well, maybe this strategy, maybe that science, maybe this fashion, maybe this compromise, maybe this, 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 and this will deal with the problem of hopelessness and revitalize us. And it doesn't work. If you want to be original... Tell the truth. It is original to tell the truth. 
And funnily enough, it actually works. Our hope is in Christ and his word. And the neglect of the faithful ministry of God's word is also a key to our loss of hope in the life of the church. One commentator has said this, if the church is faltering or straying, the preaching is clearly at fault. If the church is lukewarm, sterile, or dead, the preaching again is at fault. True preaching cannot leave people unconcerned. It will either arouse them to repentance and to godly action, or will arouse them to ungodly hostility as they see themselves in the light of God's word. And the hardest thing, whether you're witnessing to a friend or trying to preach from a pulpit, is to be faithful to those things which can make you unpopular. The kingdom of God isn't a popularity contest, of course, but sometimes we can think that it is. It's hard to be faithful in our own time to those things that are going to make us potentially unpopular, but it's our duty first to the whole counsel of God. That's our responsibility. That's our calling. It's daunting because in Scripture, actually the preacher is compared, amongst other things, not particularly flatteringly, to a watchdog in Isaiah 56.10. A watchdog. Watchdogs bark a warning. Well, they're supposed to. If you've got a lap dog, you might not be, have much of a warning bark. But the idea, in part, of keeping a dog is the barking of a warning that there may be an intruder. Well, <clears throat> false preaching is likened to a dumb dog that cannot bark. It's not flattering, is it? But hope is kindled in people's lives when we take Christ at his word and we apply it. When Christ in us, the hope of glory becomes also Christ externalized and manifest in every aspect of our lives. Hope, though, is gradually eroded and destroyed when God's word is not declared and when it is left unapplied. And it is actually possible to be completely orthodox and have lots of learning on display and demonstrate your depth of exegesis and insight and leave people bored and stupefied with God's word completely unapplied. It's possible to preach with evangelical fervor and feeling of your experience and encourage others to seek the experience you've had and still leave God's word unapplied. And we don't need any lectures in how many neo-orthodox or liberal teachers there are who tell us we need to release the text from its cultural bondage and somehow seek out an abstract meaning, which in the end means salvation by man in some other way than the cross of Christ. Always, that's what it amounts to. Out goes the atonement, out goes the judgment of God, out goes the sovereignty of God. All of these things are jettisoned. And then there's the radicals in the camp who begin by condemning everybody else and all the previous centuries of the church and tell us that we're modernists and rationalists and out of date if we're concerned with the question of truth. And that our problem is our middle class lives and that we need to go and recover an ancient monasticism, embrace the spirit of our time, and then hopelessness is seen as a romantic virtue. I've seen this. I've seen it consistently in my own generation. And these forces and many others sap the hope of God's people. What God wants from us, though, I believe, is the faithful declaration of his word. When we summon one another to hear, to listen, to obey. Not in our own strength. That's not to say that we hear, listen, and obey out of our own power. We've heard that this morning. It's the Holy Spirit who works in us to will and to do. But the Apostle John is very clear that if we say we love him, we don't obey his commandments, then we don't know, we don't know him at all. If God's word is left unapplied in our lives, it's not man's idea that's been revealed to us to 
declare to this world. It's the person of Jesus Christ. There is this concrete finality about the incarnation of Jesus and the revelation that he has given to us. This alone is what produces hope and destroys hopelessness. Hope is only marshaled when this word of truth in Christ is faithfully declared and applied. Now, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 12 through 13, that we were once in this hopeless condition. What does he say? Words familiar to you. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says that's the former condition that we were in before we knew Christ, before the revelation of Christ came. He says this is the condition of the world, is a general description of the world's condition, without hope because they are without God in the world. Notice, though, that our text, that text there in Ephesians 2 is not about heaven. It isn't talking about heaven. Often when we speak about hope, the first thing we do is sit back and think about the sweet by and by across the River Jordan, slow train coming. Well, we're all looking forward to the final consummation of all things and the fullness of the kingdom. But Paul here is talking about people without hope and without God in the world. In this life, in this context, the ungodly are without hope in this world. Bishop Westcott, commenting on this, said there is a strange pathos in the combination They were, that's the Gentile nations, of necessity face-to-face with all the problems of nature and life, but without him in whose wisdom and righteousness and love they could find rest and hope. The vast yet transitory order of the physical universe was for them, without its interpreter, an unsolved enigma. The Gentiles had indeed gods and many lords, but no God-loving men whom men could love. The Gentile world of which Paul was speaking about, oh, they had all kinds of religious beliefs. They had pantheons of gods and many lords, but they were without hope. Why is that? Well, for the humanist, for the pagan mind, and this mentality completely dominates our culture today, and it even makes its way into the church, The world is nothing more than an anomaly in the chaos of our experience. The laws of nature, for example, are seen as anomalies in the chaos, the particulars of human experience. They've been thrown out of the womb of chance. We are surrounded, if you like, by a sea of facts that are impervious to interpretation. They're meaningless, like a billion beads, but no thread to give them a unity. You know, ladies, like a necklace that you put on. A necklace isn't a necklace. I mean, you know when a a child breaks your necklace and the beads spill all over the floor? Well, the key thing about those beads is they have a hole in them. They can all be threaded. Well, the experience, the way some people look at the world, it's like billions of beads, but there is no thread. There's just a sea of chaos out there, and we are confronted with it. In the modern modern way, that there we are confronted with that which is completely irrational. So, for pantheistic faiths, there is a blank unity of nothingness or non-being that is ultimate. Outside of biblical faith, you have essentially totemism. You know what the totem pole is, don't you? Well, totemism is basic to all paganism. At the bottom of the pole, you have at the bottom of what the Greeks called the chain of being. It's the, basically the same idea. You have the inanimate, and all the way up, moving your way up the pole, there, increases, there are increases in complexity until you reach the apex of the totem, which, of course, is man. Totemism. There is some kind of relationship between everything that's come out of the chaos. And so 
from this folly, this conviction that this is what we're confronted with, the Gentile world needed a deliverer. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. Needed a deliverer. It's very interesting to me. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. The good shepherd. In antiquity, many of the great states, their state leaders in these empires in antiquity claimed and gave to themselves the name the great shepherd. The great shepherd. Jesus arrives on the scene in antiquity and says, I am the good shepherd. A deliverer. Behind all of these ideas that have informed our time is actually the religion of Zoroastrianism. It lies behind Hinduism and Buddhism. There was a quasi-historical figure called Zoroaster. Zoroaster. And a a derivative term that uh, Nietzsche used, related term, same name, Zarathustra in his exclamation that God is dead. God is dead. Thus spake Zarathustra, Zoroaster, same name. God is dead. Do you know what it means? The seed of the woman, the deliverer. That's what Zoroaster means. And so the basic idea in all paganism, and Zoroastrianism lies behind all forms of pagan religion, is that there is a deliverer a seed of the woman, not found in the person ultimately of Jesus Christ, but located somewhere else in man. And as he, in Nietzsche's thought, moves beyond good and evil and declares himself the superman, he can start to define truth and reality for himself. You say, Joe, this is all very abstract. I don't really give a monkey's about Zoroaster, Zarathustra, Nietzsche, and all that nonsense. Well, here's how it's relevant. What does the modern state believe about itself? Well, the modern state believes it can redefine marriage, redefine life, redefine sexuality, redefine truth, and be your great shepherd. Provide you cradle-to-grave security. The German philosopher Hegel said the state is God on earth. That's the 19th century. Who is the great shepherd? Who is the deliverer? The deliverer is Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And Proverbs 8.36 reminds us, all those who sin against me wisdom personified, wrong their own souls. All those who hate me love death. And as we look at our culture today in the Western world, we have a love affair with death. We want to kill the young, switch off the old. Our demography is in free fall because we don't want to have children. We're closing schools all over Toronto because there aren't any kids to go to school. I was just emailed before I came away by the Toronto District School Board telling me another six schools have been closed, are marked for closure. Because if Christ is light and life, then you turn away from Christ, what direction does the world move in? Death and darkness. It's not rocket science, is it? If he is light and life, then the, whether it's fully conscious or in the subconscious, the movement is towards death. The goal of pagan thought is death. To die. To be, to have yourself snuffed out and reach nirvana. Oneness. Where identity, your individual identity is completely removed. You wouldn't even know that you'd got there. There is no you. The goal is annihilation. The goal of life is death. And we have developed increasingly a culture that promotes this to the point where suicide, of course, is 
leading cause of death among men, age 30 through 34, second leading cause of death today of our teenagers in Canada. A few months back, I was debating a professor of philosophy in Ottawa with his PhD from Harvard, I think it was, all the world's wisdom and credentials on display. And I remember my overriding impression of the man when I first met him, totally hopeless. He was a, to me, he was an object of pity. He referenced, he constantly used profanity throughout the debate, which is unusual for an academic debate. He called the world a crappy place. So here is the representative of uh, humanism speaking hope to the university community in the capital. And he said, the world is... He actually didn't use the word crappy. He used another word uh, more uh, uh, crass, which I won't use here. But the world is a crappy place. That was his message to the students. A world, of course, that is without meaning, that has no God, has no hope. There is no meaning beyond time. There is no definition of things here from eternity. It's just, well, make the best of it what you can. The world deals you a bad lot. It's a crappy place, isn't it, anyway? We're all dying. No meaning in it. And then we wonder why students why we have declining standards all around us, and why students are dogged by depression and even suicidal tendencies today in increasing numbers. Put another way, let me put it to you this way, because this is more shocking. It's a mark of ungodliness to be without hope. Let me say that again. I think scripture teaches us it is a mark of ungodliness to be without hope. He says that's what you once were, without hope and without God in the world. But the message of scripture to us is that we now have nothing but hope. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, listen to what the apostle Paul says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul tells us that even our sufferings, our afflictions, are purposed to give us character and hope. And that hope does not disappoint or put to shame. There's no disappointment in the hope that God gives to us. It doesn't leave us in a position of shame. In fact, Paul tells us here that there is nothing that can happen to you, no matter how severe or difficult it may be, that cannot produce in you further hope. I don't like it when Christians sanctify hopelessness. It's not very inspiring, is it? You're inspired by hopeless people? That doesn't inspire anybody. Well, Scripture doesn't give us a message of hopelessness. This is not about personalities. Oh, Joe, you know, it's my personality. I'm just, you know, a really miserable individual. (laughs) But God, that's not justified theologically. I'm not talking about your personality. You may, you know, uh, not be a morning person and you don't want people to catch you at breakfast time. That's fine. I'm not a morning person either. I'm talking about what we believe about our God. And his word. Without hope, you cannot live. You cannot get out of bed. 
was speaking to a doctor recently, and uh, they said to me that nobody today in our culture anymore says that they're unhappy. They say they're depressed. And I was talking with a psychotherapist who told me that within the next few years, antidepressants will be the number one prescription given out by doctors. Now, of course, there are many reasons why people are unhappy or depressed. What he said is that a kind of game ensues where somebody comes into his surgery who oftentimes, he says, has three or four children by three or four different men, very bad lifestyle habits, and so forth, and they say, I'm depressed. Give me something. Well, of course, he's not there to make moral judgments or to say that, you know, there may be a relationship between the way you're living and your emotional health. Isn't it interesting how words change? We used to talk about being unhappy. Now, more often than not, people want to use the word depression, turn unhappiness into a pathology. Now, that's not true of all depression. I'm not lumping it all together. But there is a reason why, since the wonder drugs of the 1970s, all of a sudden, people feel, oh, I'm a bit down, quick, get to the doctor. We have something much better as Christians than simply a prescription to pick people up chemically. We have hope that comes from eternity in Christ. We can declare a gospel of hope and in the midst of our difficulties and our sufferings and our problems, God can still birth in us greater hope. Hope doesn't mean we'll never be sad or depressed or down. Charles Spurgeon was a man of great hope and great passion, yet he struggled with his, what he called his black days, constantly. Now, he took a church from a few hundred to 10,000, built orphanages, schools, seminaries, did more than most pastors would dream of achieving in the city of London in a very difficult time, constantly struggled. But he had hope because his God gave him hope. Even Winston Churchill, actually, who I don't believe was a, uh, a Christian, to the best of my knowledge, in the sense that you and I would understand the evangelical faith, used to talk about his black dog days. He struggled with depression. But there was a man of hope who believed something. He had to believe something. And he had to give others hope as well. In Romans 4, verse 17, 17 through 18, we have something of a paradigm for hope. Our pattern is Abraham. Romans chapter 4, verse 17 through 18. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Imagine being Abraham, you've been given a name that means the father of many, father of many nations in the end, Abraham, and you don't have a child in a context culturally where your name defined you. When your, when your name, I mean, oftentimes, you know, we, when we name our children, sometimes we'll, we'll flick through our names. Oh, I like that one. Oh, what does grandma think of that? Oh, do you think we should name them after, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in the ancient world, they thought of their names as defining them. So imagine you're this patriarch, Abraham, and you're carrying around the name, the father of many nations. You don't even have a child. It's funny. That's why Sarah laughed. And Isaac, I think, means... I have a son called Isaac. I should know. Uh, I think it means laughter. He has caused me to laugh. Now, Paul, Paul says that this hope 
was hope contrary to hope, hope against hope. Don't you think you'd need hope against hope if you are over 100, your wife is over 100, and you're supposed to be the father of men, and you don't have a child? That's hope against hope. And God was trying, he was proving Abraham. He was searching him out, testing him out. I I imagine that there must have been days when Abraham felt pretty down and despondent. All I'm trying to, in part, what I'm trying to say here is there is a relationship, of course, between how we live and how happy and hopeful we are. We can't expect to live contrary to what God requires and expect to walk around in hope and happiness. The blessedness of the Beatitudes is are followed by certain requirements, aren't they? The makarioi, the happiness of God's servants, of the righteous, of the poor in spirit, of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and so forth, is predicated on certain ways in which we live and think as God's people. We can't separate those two. But in the midst of it, we might feel, and you might feel this week, well, Joe, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand my family situation. You don't understand my church situation. You You don't know. You know, I don't know. But I know somebody who does know. He knows. And Abraham hoped contrary. What does he mean by that? Well, it means that when all the rest of the world is saying, you're a nutcase believing that he hoped anyway you know why he hoped well he believed in the god that paul believed in when he wrote to timothy he who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings the lord of lords that's the god that we serve that's why i could go to ottawa in hope not because i thought i had credentials matching the person i was going to debate with for all these students I went with my five smooth stones, as it were, against my Goliath, but I went in hope because I know that it's not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon the God whose strength we go in. And whatever circumstance or difficulty you're facing, it isn't ultimately and finally dependent upon you. It's dependent upon the God whose strength you go in. And that's what gives us hope. I mean, if it was down to this motley crew and uh, me here tonight to be the answer to the problems of our culture and our society and the church, it's hopeless. Isn't it? But it isn't dependent upon that. That's what Psalm 46 is all about. It all depends in the end on who we believe. To be without hope then, friends, is to deny the faith, abandon Scripture, and reject God's mercy. One of the difficulties is that, and this is a strange phenomenon, we can actually be afraid of victory. We can be afraid of victory. Do you know, it's actually harder to hope. It's harder to hope. It's easier to dress up faithlessness as realism. And sometimes cynics want to avoid hope because they want to avoid disappointment. We're worried. If we get our hope, we say, don't get your hopes up. Don't we say that? Don't get your hopes up. You don't want to be disappointed. It's harder to hope. One of the problems, I think, in our modern church is that there is a fear of victory, of joy, of spiritual health and growth and strength. And doctors do see this all of the time, right? I do try and pay attention to the conversations I have with doctors and psychotherapists and psychologists and so forth to understand better the human condition. That there are people who will come to them persistently with imaginary ailments because they actually want to be sick. They want to be treated as sick or ill. Why do some people want to be ill? Well, because we might fear taking responsibility. We might fear obligations if people think we're healthy. true you know there are certain things that there are similar reasons at times maybe we think we'll lose people's pity or their compassion and actually we can hamper ourselves in the kingdom of god by being afraid of seeing god triumph in a particular situation 
Sometimes we like our pain and we need it too much. One of my favorite stories is the Lord of the Rings. I hope you all know what the Lord of the Rings is. It's a book by J.R. Tolkien. It's been made into a, a, tr- a trilogy of movies. And this is a kind of mythology shot through with Christian imagery. Tolkien, by the way, was a very good friend of C.S. Lewis at Oxford. Tolkien was instrumental in seeing C.S. Lewis come to faith in Christ. And it's a story of this incredible standoff between light and darkness. And what always strikes me as I watch it, and I usually watch the whole movie through about twice a year, the extended editions, is that uh, the story is, they say, of a fool's hope. What, you're going to let two hobbits wander into the heart of Mordor in the hope that they're going to... It's a fool's hope. That's how the story is portrayed. It's a story of hope against hope. And you have this incredible character, Lord Denethor, the steward of Gondor, the realm of men, who fears victory. And after an incredible victory in the field of battle outside of the gates of Helm's Deep, when he is faced, having known about this, when he is faced with the onset of battle, he says to one of the lead characters, you may have triumphed in the field for a day, but against the power that is risen in the east, there is no victory. Some people's Christian eschatology runs something like that. There's no chance of any sort of victory in the world. Our best hope is to hunker down and wait to be shipped out of here as quickly as possible. Well, I put it to you that that saps the hope of the church. That if our reading material is about escape from the world and not hope in the world, and it's all doom and gloom and so on and so forth, then actually, how do we then get stirred in hope for our neighbors, for our friends, for our colleagues, for our schools, for our universities, for our churches? There is a fear of victory. When the battle begins, instead of saying, man your posts, Lord Denethor says, flee for your lives. That's really helpful at the beginning of a battle, isn't it? And there's a wonderful moment, a cinematic moment in the movie version where Gandalf sends up one of the little hobbits to light a signal beacon. Who's seen this? Put your hand up. Just give me some support here. Who's seen this? Right, so you've got the image in your mind. You have seen it. He sends a little hobbit up to the highest point so that the signal beacon can be lit. And then there's this moment where the lights light up on the mountaintops right across the mountain ranges all the way to Rohan, where it's seen by Viggo Mortensen, (laughs) who runs in to tell the king that the beacons are lit. You know what Gandalf says when it's lit? He says, hope is kindled. Hope is kindled. Now, there is a biblical message there. There's a Christian message there. Christ is the king, and hope is kindled in an account of hope seemingly against hope. Let me read to you a few verses from Isaiah, if you can cope with the warmth for just a few more minutes, and have hope that I will be concluded (laughs) shortly. Isaiah 59 and verses 12 through 21. Listen to our God in the con- what he says in the context of a world in the midst of transgression and iniquity. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the streets and equity cannot enter. So truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man, and he wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought him salvation, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation for his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, according 
Accordingly will he repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear him, the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob says the Lord. No matter how far justice seems turned back, no matter how bleak things look in our own lives or in the public square, even to the point of those who do right, who love righteousness, make themselves a prey, make themselves victims, God wraps himself in zeal and he will come as a rushing stream. What's required of us is faithfulness. Faithfulness. We set apart Christ as Lord and are ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. One of the things that we can sometimes do inadvertently is venerate the past in such a way that looking back to some time, some experience, some past work, some past revival, some past saints in some sort of holy primitivism, we can romanticize the past. Now, I'm a student of the past. I love studying the past, and I have many heroes in the past. But what's the purpose of such a cloud of witnesses? Not so we can say, oh, it's not like the good old days but rather that we would be inspired by all that God has done in the past through his church, through his people, through his saints. Do we serve the same God? Do we have the same Lord? Is Christ still the head of his church as he was for John Calvin and John Knox? And if you don't like them, John Wesley. <laughs> and George Whitfield. You know, the 18th century England was arguably just as big a mess as 21st century England. And God still worked and moved through a faithful people. If these accounts of God's work in the past move us to strength and hope, wonderful. If they don't, if it's just a sort of some kind of holy primitivism, some kind of anachronistic exercise, it just saps further the energy of the church and the hope of the church. If we never look forward in hope, we're actually only part of the problem, not part of God's solution for our time. Let me conclude by noting the covenant of hope that God contrasts for us uh, in two places in the Old Testament. In Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, I'm not going to read them for brevity, but in Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, we read of the consequences of sin the effects of sin reaching to the third and fourth generation. The effects of sin reaching out in a nation to the third and fourth generation. Now, I would argue very simply that you can see that in the last hundred years in Canada. Generation Y, the generation under me, is now paying the social consequences for a delinquent church a hundred years ago and a progressive period of decline. Remember the 60s, the sexual revolution, the social revolution? Well, it all began long before that, but it came to a head at that point. We do see in the natural realm that there is an impact, there is an effect of sin that touches generationally. You can't avoid it. But you know, in Deuteronomy 7... I've got to read this because it's so exciting. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. This is what God says. Verse 7 through 9. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers... The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. 
and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Three to four generations. A thousand generations. Now you might say, Joe, that's hyperbole. I don't care. The point is still the same. God is saying that to generation after generation after generation, I keep faithful, faithful to my covenant promises to my people if they will be faithful to me. Now think about the implications of that for every church, every school, every university, every family. What about your children, your grandchildren? How many of you have got grandchildren? Put your hands up. What kind of a church and a Canada do you want for your grandchildren? Do you want to just go down the plug? The days have gone down in the west. They have passed like rain on the mountainside, like wind in the meadow. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. What kind of a hope are we giving to our children, our grandchildren? What kind of a church do we want for them? You know, we're losing 70% of our children, statistically, in the church at the moment. 70% of our children in evangelical homes are lost by the age of 23 to the church. So even if we believed God's promises and worked in terms of his promise for this generation, the children here today, the church is 70% better off in the next generation. But sometimes we have such a short-term vision, we think, well, hang on, I'm waiting for the rapture. What about your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren? The promise, those sins' consequences may be to the third and fourth generation. His promises of blessing are to a thousand generations. In other words, friends, it goes something like this. How dare you have no hope? You know, Jesus told us that worry was a sin. Does that offend you? I get upset with that sometimes. I think, hang on a minute. Come on, I've got things I need to be worried about. No, Jesus tells us anxiety, worry, is saying something about what we believe about God. Scripture really is telling us here, how de- who are you to have no hope? Who are you to redefine God's purposes? Who am I? We are a people of hope. Because we're a people of the king. This God has not grown old. His arm has not grown short. The ages haven't made God weak. I was playing soccer on Friday night and I'd missed three games because I was away in England. The next day, I tell you, the pain. There never used to be any pain. I'm growing old, despite the oil of Ule. I am a... I'm wearing away. I can feel it. Is that true of our God? Is he still the same God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Apostle Paul? O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. That's the God I'm serving. The only hope the world's got to offer is the hope of the culture vultures, the elites who tell you in every broadsheet what good taste is, what high art is, and so on and so forth. Hope of the world is simply to be discerning about what good culture looks like. Leaving behind the uncultured mob, the dandy, the gourmet, the connoisseur, But you know, the gospel of Christ tells us whether you eat or you drink, it doesn't matter about your station in life, do it all for the glory of God. In other words, Paul says, it doesn't matter whether you're brushing your teeth or whether you're having dinner together, everything that you do is for the glory of this God. That's our purpose as God's people. 
And this God is the one who gives us hope in history. We are the people of the Jubilee. And Jesus read it when he began his ministry, public ministry. He got up and he read from the scroll, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty from captivity. The people of the Jubilee. And when he had finished reading... They rolled up the scroll and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Christ is the Lord of the Jubilee. And we are his people, we are his church, and hope is kindled when you and I are faithful to the mandate that God has given us. And this hope, what is it that John tells us in 1 John? This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Such a hope has to be shared, declared, and defended. And what an opportunity we have in a generation, perhaps more biblically illiterate, as we said at the beginning, than in 1,500 years of the history of the West, we have an opportunity. You see, sometimes what we look at as great sources of discouragement and despondency are actually God's moment of opportunity. And all I see in Toronto right now is a day of opportunity. It was Winston Churchill when he was returned to the Admiralty that said, today I conquer or die. I think we need that kind of a spirit restored to God's church. Not because it is some sort of personality, some kind of artificial whipping people up. No, it is because that is the very God that Scripture speaks about. So whatever your circumstance, personal, familial, ecclesiastical, whatever it may be, hope is kindled in God's church when we will be faithful to his word. So in the rest of the mornings this week, I'm going to talk about various aspects of the calling of the church where we can believe God in hope for this generation. Anybody want to see a change in their town and community and family and city? most of you. So this is where we begin. Christ in us, as Hans said this morning, the hope of glory, and now believing in hope, the promises that God has made to his church. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.